the Son of God really care for me? Does he? John chapter 10 is one of the most famous chapters in the Gospels. It's one of the most loved chapters in the Bible. Why is that? Why is that? It has to do with the subject of chapter 10. But let me ask you this question. What chapter in Scripture is quoted? Not verse, but what chapter is quoted more than any other chapter in the Bible? You know it. Most of you know it by heart. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. It's one of the most comforting chapters in Scripture. David is saying, God is my shepherd. And then after he makes that statement, he lists all that his shepherd does for him. David was a shepherd. In this poem, he counts himself not a shepherd, though. He counts himself a sheep in God's flock. And then he tells how his shepherd cares for him. Now, Jesus uses that same theme in John 10. Except here in John 10, Jesus says, I am. The good shepherd. He doesn't speak as a sheep, but as a shepherd, the shepherd. And after he makes that statement, he speaks of how he cares for his flock. David spoke as a sheep cared for by the shepherd. Jesus speaks as the good shepherd who cares for his sheep. To understand John chapter 10, we must recognize why Jesus and the Apostle John placed it where they did. Why that suddenly became the subject. Why do we get this major discourse by Jesus on being the good shepherd? Takes the whole chapter. But why? You'll not, you'll not comprehend John chapter 10 until you answer that question. We're going to spend the next two weeks answering that question. Why? Why is it here? In other words, we're asking, what's the context of John chapter 10? It doesn't just appear out of nowhere and then just drop off. There's a context to it. John 10 has two contexts. The first is an immediate context. The second is a much larger context. This morning we'll spend the rest of our time looking at the immediate context of John chapter 10. Now that may not excite you. You may say, I don't know whether I'm going to really be interested in this or not. But it should excite you. What happened just before Jesus begins this discourse. What had taken place? You know this story. We looked at it in detail. Jesus heals a man who had been blind since birth. He gives him sight. He does it on the Sabbath day. And as always, the Pharisees are aggravated. They think he's breaking the Sabbath. They think this is evil. 
His neighbors bring this recently healed man, given his sight. His neighbors and the crowd bring him to the Pharisees so that they could see what had happened. And first, the Pharisees don't, don't believe the miracle. They don't think it happened. And the man said, I was born blind. Yes, I was that beggar here. I was, everybody knows it. The crowd affirmed that Jesus had healed the man, that he had been the man that had been born blind. And they even brought in the man's parents and they said, is this your son? Yes, he is. Was, was he blind? Yes, he was born blind. The Pharisees then pressed the man. They can't deny their miracles, so they press them in. They say, stop giving Jesus the credit. Give God the glory. And the man stuck by his story. He said, you, you say that this Jesus is evil. What kind of evil man is it that does these wonderful miracles and makes blind people see? He said, I only know this. I was blind, and now I see, and Jesus healed me. Jesus did it. Now, the Pharisees had said that anyone who pointed to Jesus as Messiah and said Jesus was Messiah would be excommunicated from the synagogue, would be thrown out of the synagogue. That would be a big thing. That's like being sent into exile. That's, that is being put into a social prison, a social isolation. They threw, they threw this blind man, the man that had been blind, they threw him out of the synagogue. Now you think about that for a minute. That's pitiful. This man's been blind all his life. He's begged all his life because he couldn't support himself. And Jesus has given him his sight. This is the greatest thing that's ever happened to him. And what happens? He gets thrown out of the synagogue. I mean... It's pitiful. Jesus hears about it. And what happens next? Let's read it ourselves. Look on your scripture sheet, John 9, 35 to 38. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and he, it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped Jesus. This is one of my favorite scenes in all the gospel. Why? Jesus heard what had happened to the man, and then the next words are, having found him. Jesus, where are you going? Where are you headed? I'm going to go find that man who was blind. I'm going to go see him. Wow. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he? You see him. He's the one who's speaking to you. Lord, I believe. At that point. You want to know the context? At that point. Jesus begins his discourse on the good shepherd. That's the immediate context. Jesus seeking out the man he had, he had healed. He was like a shepherd looking for a sheep who had been thrown aside. 
Over and over again in the Old Testament, you read Jeremiah, Isaiah, pick this afternoon, just choose where you want to read and you'll see it. That Jesus looks at the false prophets, at the false priests that were leading his flock Israel astray into idolatry and lots of other things. And he calls them bad shepherds. He says, you're supposed to be shepherding my flock. You're bad shepherds. Well, here, Jesus pictures the Pharisees as being poor shepherds, as being false shepherds. He calls them, we read it this morning, he calls them thieves, robbers, hirelings, who do not care about the flock. This is one of the things he's doing in the passage. He's contrasting the good shepherd with the bad shepherds who are just in it for themselves. David spoke of God being his shepherd and then explained in poetic language how God cared for him. The Lord's my shepherd. It was his personal testimony. He was speaking to Israel. The Lord, God, is my shepherd. And here's how he cares for me. This week when I was writing this, I thought about George Beverly Shea. I want to ask you a question. I've got to do this. I thought about it and I said, no, I'm not going to do it, but I am. I'm taking a poll this morning. Now, if you hadn't heard of him, it's okay. It doesn't have anything with you to do with you getting in heaven, okay? I just want to know, because I'm 77 years old, and when I mention names, sometimes I look at you and you say, who's that? So how many of you have heard of George Beverly Shea? Raise your hand. Okay. All right. He sang in all of Billy Graham's crusade. He and Billy Graham were inseparable. And one of the songs that he sang was, No One Ever Cared for Me Like Jesus. Remember that? Well, I'll tell you what. This afternoon... Get on the internet, go to YouTube, type in George Beverly Shea, no one ever cared for me like Jesus, and listen to it. You'll be so glad you did. That was David's testimony in Psalm 23. This is my personal testimony. God is my shepherd, and here's what he does for me. This morning... You look, look back in your bulletin right now. This morning, how did we close our call to worship? How did we close? From Psalm 66, 16. Come and listen, all you who fear God. Let me tell you what he's done for me. Could we do that today? Could you do that? Could you say, Jesus, my shepherd, let me tell you how he cares for me. Let me tell you what he does for me. Let me tell you how he's changed my life. Can we do that? Can I do that? Well, let's look at what Jesus said that he did for his sheep. He says first that he died for his sheep. Look at verse 11. I am the good shepherd. And immediately he says, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. People, five times, count them. Five times in these verses, Jesus speaks of laying down his life for the sheep. It's his main point. You want to know, I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. 
What's the supreme sacrifice that anyone can make? It's, it's to die for someone else. Do you realize that you're able to say, let me tell you a truth. We can say this to our neighbors. Say this to anybody. Let me tell you a truth. I know someone who died for me. I know someone personally who died for me. Now we think about our brave soldiers in the armed forces who, who give their lives. They give their lives not for us. They give their lives for the preservation of the Constitution. They give their lives for freedom. They give their lives for their country. They don't, we don't say, they died in our place. They died for me. We don't say that. But you can say that. His name is Jesus, and he died. He's my shepherd. He died for me. In theological terms, Christianity teaches that the death of Christ was a vicarious atonement. As you say, don't throw those big words out. We don't, we don't need that. Yes, you do. You need to hear this. Vicarious. It comes from the Latin word that sounds just like that, vicarious. And it means a substitute. It means a representative. Thus we say that the death of Jesus was a vicarious atonement. It was a substitutionary atonement. He took our sins. He was our substitute. He took our sins. He took our guilt. And he took our punishment on himself. He was our substitute. You know, last Wednesday and Thursday evenings, our adult Bible study witnessed from Revelation chapter 20 the history consummating judgment of God. And it is a scene like no other. When men and women, when people from all ages, from 10,000 years ago down to the present day, when peasants and kings stood before Stand before Almighty God and held accountable. This is perfect holiness that tolerates no sin. And we saw as we looked at this, that you know what? We won't stand in that courtroom. We won't. We will not be in that courtroom. You see, Jesus has already stood there for us, with our sins, with our shame, with our guilt, and he suffered the eternal judgment of God. We've already been in that courtroom. We were in that courtroom in Jesus. But I think this, I think that we will not grasp all that Jesus did to us and for us until we stand there and we see it. And if you are in Christ, you will see it.
I don't think we'll grasp until then what Jesus has done for us. Revelation tells us, the book of Revelation tells us that we will sing hymns in glory that the angels cannot sing. You say, what do you mean? They can sing them probably a lot better than I can. No, they, there's some hymns they can't sing. You see, Jesus did not die for them. They can sing about how God created them, how God gave them all these gifts and talents that they have. But they're not able to sing of their Redeemer because Jesus is not their Redeemer. They didn't need one. We sang this morning, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain for me, who him to death pursued. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Angels cannot sing. Not even Gabriel can sing that either. But you will. At the end of our worship, our end of this message, as we come to the table, we're going to sing, Oh, sacred head, thou wound it. Angels can't sing that hymn. That's for God's redeemed to sing. His death. Five times, five times our shepherd reminds us in this passage that he laid down his life for his sheep. You know, when David wrote Psalm 23, he didn't know about the cross. He didn't know about the vicarious atonement. You know what David didn't know? His death was vicarious. He gave his life for his sheep. His death was vicarious. Secondly, his death was voluntary. Look at verse 18. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. We have seen the Pharisees, members of Sanhedrin, in their two-year battle against Jesus. We've seen over and over that they tried to kill him. They tried to put an end to him. And we see Pilate. Now, Sanhedrin was powerful. That there was someone more powerful. We see Pilate with all the authority and power of Rome. And there are those that look at the Sanhedrin. There are those that look at the power of Rome in this play, in this scene. And they say, this Jesus, this would-be Messiah, got caught up in the political and social and religious machinations of Rome and Israel and Jerusalem, and the gears of those powerful machines just crushed him. Just crushed him. No. No. This was the Son of God. The Sanhedrin was nothing. Kindergarten. Pilate was a speck of dust in the providence of God. When his disciples, we say this over and over again, but I want you to know this. Jesus, Jesus said it here. No one can take it from me. Not Pilate, not Caesar, not anyone. Why is that important? You know, when the disciples tried to prevent his arrest, what did Jesus do? He said, are you guys serious? After three years, do you not know who I am? I can bring 10,000 angels. My fathers can sing legions of angels. I can put an end to the Roman Empire in just a few minutes. 
Now, the Sanhedrin and Pilate will bear their responsibility, but they didn't have the power to take his life. They didn't. Without his consent, it couldn't have happened. William Barclay is a well-known writer of New Testament commentaries. Don't go out and buy a commentary written by Barclay. Uh, it's not worth it. Uh, the man's a heretic. Uh, and he abandoned many of the, He did not believe in the deity of Jesus. Um, didn't believe in the incarnation. Didn't believe in the substitutionary atonement. But for some reason, he got this right. I don't know how he did, but he did. Listen to him. He said Jesus was not a victim of circumstance. He was not like some animal dragged to the sacrifice, unwilling to go, struggling against the hands of the priest, unknowing what was happening. Jesus voluntarily laid down his life because he chose to do so. How has the shepherd cared for his sheep? He gave his life for his sheep. His death was vicarious. His death was voluntary. Thirdly, the, the shepherd's death for his sheep was planned. Look at verse 17. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it. See, he keeps going back to this. He says it over and over again. I lay down my life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it again. This charge I have received from my father. What's Jesus saying? All this has been planned, folks. It's all planned. All through Scripture, Old and New Testaments, we see the incarnation and atoning death of Jesus are planned. How in the world do the prophets in the Old Testament speak in details about the birth of this Messiah that will take place hundreds of years later? Or about the death of this Messiah that will take place hundreds of years? How can they do that? Because it was part of a plan. It was a plan of God. It was a providence of God. You know, this is important to our passage this morning where Jesus is speaking about his care for his sheep. If Jesus' death is forced by mankind, if it's some kind of accident of history, how does that speak to us of the Father's love or the Messiah's love? Two stories. I love, I spent a lot of time walking the streets of Oakland and the Streets and roads and fields in Fayette County. What if one day I came across a sack? This actually happened to a friend of mine. I came across a sack, and I pick up things all the time that people have littered. And, but I pick up a sack, but it's not empty. And I look inside, and it has thousands of dollars in it. And I go to the police and say, I found this money. We must find out whose it is. So we make all the effort to find out who's it. What well, can't find it? You know where this money came from. And the authorities come to me and say, John, hey, you found it. It's yours. So I go home and I say, Terry, let's go to the beach. You know? All right, that's one story. But let's change the story. I know that Terry loves the beach. That's her appetite. She'd rather be there than anywhere. So I developed a plan to take her to the most expensive beach resort on the Florida coast. I spent three years putting away money for this trip. 
two months before the trip, I take her on a wonderful clothes buying venture so that she'll have clothes for the resort on the Florida coast. I spend three years putting away, four years putting away the money for this trip. We'll be gone a month. A month involves a lot of money. We go on this wonderful trip. The cost, well, I could have bought a brand new Mercedes with the money I spent to take her on this fabulous trip. Now I have a question. Which story speaks of my love and care for Terry? Money is found. Let's go to Florida. Or sacrificing for several years, planning for several years. Folks, planned sacrificial generosity is usually a sign of great care. Spontaneous accidental prosperity is not. That cross, the cross of the Good Shepherd, was planned from eternity, not three years. From eternity, it was planned. And by the way, God paid a price for you. God paid a price for you. A greater price than has ever been paid for anyone or anything. And it was planned. How does a shepherd care for his sheep? He gave his life for his sheep. His death was vicarious. His death was voluntary. His death was planned. Fourthly, finally, the shepherd's death was particular and personal. Now hang with me here. You're not going to see this immediately, but you'll get it. Look at verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Now, in this passage, two types of sheepfolds are described. We might look at the second one next week, but the first one is described in these opening verses. It would have been a sheep pen a sheepfold for an entire village or town. It would have been used by many, was used by many shepherds with many different flocks. It was sort of, we think about it as a co-op. The shepherds would bring their flocks from the hills in the evening and they would put them in the sheep pen, the village sheep pen or the village sheepfold for the night, a gatekeeper was hired to keep watch over the pen. There was only one gate, one way in, one way out. Now, this was sheep country, experienced shepherds. These shepherds knew their sheep. They knew their rams. They knew their ewes. They knew their lambs. It was common for them to give their sheep 
names. They lived with these sheep. They'd give the, they'd give the lambs names, give the ewes names, give the rams names. Jesus keeps saying in this passage, he knows his sheep. He knows his sheep by name. That's what he says. It's right there. He calls them by name. Just as a father knows him. Now think about this. He said in verse 14, just as a father knows him, he knows the father, so I know my sheep. Now that's pretty intimate between the father and the son. There's no more intimate relationship in heaven and earth than that relationship. And yet he compares it to his knowing the sheep. He knew their names. So the sheep knew their names. The individual shepherd would come to the pen. The gatekeeper would see it, you know, the, you know the, the, that he, they, he was real shepherd. Knew he had sheep there. He had opened the gate. And the shepherd would start speaking, calling the name of the sheep. And the sheep knew his voice. That's our shepherd. And they would come out. Do you understand that? Jesus sang his passage. I'm your shepherd. I know your name. Have you ever had a world famous personal hero? I have. All of us have. We watch this person from afar. We would not dare walk up to them. They're famous. Larger than life. We think he or she does not even know I exist. He or she does not know me. In Revelation 5.10, we read the coronation of the Son of Man and Son of God. Follow along as I read that, and we're done. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. This is a scene in glory. This is the coronation of Christ when he goes back to glory. Then I saw the right hand in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. A scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who's worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? The scroll was the deed to heaven and earth. The deed of ownership. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has trumped. He's able to open the scroll in its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, out, God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the people of God. 
And they sang a new song saying, You're worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. That is the coronation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Son of Man. And there's no greater person. There's no greater person in heaven or earth. And he knows your name. You'll never be able to save him. He doesn't even know I exist. He died for you. You're one of his sheep. I would think that you would rather Jesus know your name than any hero that you have. You can say with David, God is my shepherd and he knows my name. Amen. Our hymn.